to Psalm 81. Will, if you and I would have sat down together and tried to coordinate sermon and songs, we couldn't have done better. In fact, we probably would have done worse. We are looking at Psalm 81, and it is a call to righteous living for the various things that it reminds us about, and it starts out by telling us about joy. But I want to step back a few paces and look at this psalm in a a little bit different way before we move on. This psalm is a reminder to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, that they are to celebrate who God is. In fact, as they were commanded to do so, at the various feasts and the various holidays that God had set apart for them, that they were mandated to come before the Lord, they were mandated to worship Him and to offer sacrifices and give offerings and those types of things. And then He tells them, here's how you do it. In fact is, I'd like to just look at what a proper observation should be of any holiday, any meeting, any celebration that brings God's people together. First of all, it needs to be one of a right attitude. You're going to see this in a sermon outline in a little while. It needs to be a right attitude. The right attitude needs to be that of praise, of joyful singing. In other words, it needs to be worship from the heart. Us expressing back to God what He means to us. That can be in song, and it's going to emphasize that here. But it also could be in prayer. It could be in preaching or teaching. It could be in fellowship in lots of other ways. But this one expresses it very clearly in music. It's a reminder. Every time we get together, a reminder of the past. What God has already done for us, Himself, and what He has done in our lives personally. Reminded of that. Of course, in the nation of Israel, they always almost always, go back to Egypt when God rescued them, delivered them, saved them from bondage and from slavery. It's a time of instruction. And the third thing is it's a challenge to live in the light of that joy and a challenge to live in the light of the past to live a holy life in the future. It is a call to holy living. I'm going to end by using the last verses of this psalm with the words taken out have kind of altered the context from Israel to us. And I'm just going to throw that up on the screen when I'm done and challenge you as you leave here with what God has already challenged the children of Israel and continues to challenge us today. Now, we're celebrating a holiday, Memorial Day. We should do that. It's a secular day in the United States, but holiday didn't always mean a secular day. In fact, is it meant a holy day in Old English. And then it came to uh, take on the meaning of any day set aside that you don't normally work uh, because it's set aside. It's a vacation, a holiday, a day set aside uh, for recreation and lots of other things. Uh, we use it in the broader sense today. Very practical. If you're going to have a holiday, a vacation, what should it look like? I've been around long enough and counseled enough people to know that holidays and vacations are not always what they ought to be. So I have some palm fair, practical, down-to-earth instruction for vacation. You didn't expect that this morning, but here you go. Number one. Don't plan too many things. It should be a time of relaxation. Don't spend more than you can afford. You will not relax afterwards. 
because the credit card bill will come in. So keep that in mind. Plan age-appropriate activities. I know people that plan these big elaborate vacations and it is a disaster because the kids don't appreciate it. The parents are frustrated. Plan age-appropriate, especially if you have kids. If you're old, plan age-appropriate too, like you're not going to walk all day long. You need a wheelchair. I, just kidding, just kidding. I feel that way this morning, okay? Spe- schedule plenty of downtime. Notice I put the word schedule in there. Don't just say, well, when we're done with all the activities, we'll have downtime. Schedule downtime. My wife and I always schedule downtime when we went on vacation. Make sure, and this goes right in with the sermon this morning. That's why I'm doing this. Make sure you schedule time for family worship and personal Bible study. Spiritual enrichment on your own. Read a book, whatever you want to do. Spend some time reading whole chapters, whole books of the Bible, that type of thing. Keep travel to a minimum. Plenty of vacations have been ruined by, you know, 20 hours of straight driving when dad's saying we're not stopping again and mom's saying you better or we're, you, you know the, you know the scenario. Anyway, make sure you don't ruin your vacation by the travel. And last but not least, putting it all together, make sure that you come home refreshed, recreated. That's what recreation means, recreated. Some time to, to rejuvenate yourself and relaxed. Because that's what a holiday is. And you say, hold it a second. Are you sure all of these things are biblical? I'm not sure all of them are exactly biblical, but by principle they are. But there is one thing. The last thing that we're going to look at today when we look at God's mandated holidays for Israel, it is a seven-day campout mandated. Seven days of no work camping out. That's what God said. So vacations... Holidays are not a man-made thing. They come from God. You'll see that as we go on. So, Psalm 81. It's almost not. Will, I was looking for you to steal my thunder, but you didn't. So, great. Thank you. Okay, Psalm 81 starts with this. Sing for joy to the Lord. Uh, Sing to, yeah, I'm sorry. Hang on a second. Let me start over. Sing for joy to God, our strength. Sing joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre, with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. God says that when we are going to live righteously, the first thing we need to be reminded of is that we need to have a right attitude toward life toward God. And if you are a joyful person, it is a guarantee that everything else will change in its relationship to you. You know that if you go to work with a bad attitude, you will pretty much have a bad day. If you get up in the morning and you have a bad attitude toward your spouse or the kids have a bad attitude, parents, of course, none of your kids would ever do that. But you know that it's going to make bad family. If you are nifted at your neighbor when you go to talk to him, you can pretty much guarantee that you and the neighbor don't get along. That's the way it is. God tells us we need to have a right attitude toward life. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice is how it says in the New Testament. We need to make a choice to have a right attitude toward God and toward life. 
if you're going to live a righteous life, a life that's holy, one that is pleasing to God, living according to His standard. That's what He wants us to do. And here He gives us the example of singing. For some of us it is the old King James, make a joyful noise. But others can sing a melody, and it actually uses the word. Uh, uh, the word for melody here when it says, raise a song, raise a melody before the Lord, and then put the instruments behind it. If you wonder if drums are okay, a timbrel is a drum. It's a tambourine-like thing. It says, oh, do you wonder if Will's okay playing the guitar? Well, it says a sweet-sounding lyre or a harp. I don't know which one fits here, but it's a guitar, regardless of how you put it out. In other words, God is saying we are to be joyful people. And i got to tell you, if you think coming to church and meeting together on a, in a worship service is simply Bible study, you're wrong. I know it gets that way, and I kind of grew up some that way. Please don't let it. It's not out of control, and it's not just emotion, but i got to tell you, it's supposed to be joyful. We are to praise the Lord, and i got to tell you, if we can set, on Sunday morning, if we can set a mindset of joy in your life, you're going to wake up Monday morning a much, much more prepared person for the week ahead. If you start out with bad, you're going to have bad. But if at least we can get you started a little bit in that direction. You see, because if you're going to live righteous, you have to be reminded that we have a right attitude, a joyful attitude toward life. A worship service is more than Bible study. It's a celebration of what God has done and what he's going to do and what he wants to do in our lives. That's what he wants us to know uh, this morning. Now, God did mandate some feasts. And I'm going to go over this very quickly. I only got a half an hour left. But if you don't know anything about the Old Testament feasts and the times that God mandated that they come before him, let me give you a real short introduction. In the spring of the year, which would be, well, anyway, this doesn't work. But anyway, there was the first month of the Jewish year, uh, the spring feast. There was Passover, followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then first fruits. A little bit later, about two months later, there was Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And there's a reason why they call it the Feast of Weeks. And then in the fall, in the seventh month, there were three more fall feasts that God had given them. The first one was trumpets. The second one was the Day of Atonement. And the third one is the national campout that lasted for seven days of camping out. And then there was one more holy day after that. And that's very significant. But God demanded of them to do that. If they were going to live in fellowship with him, they needed to observe those things. And that's just a chart that I put together. But let's look at them and see why we should have a right attitude, why we can have a right attitude, why we should and can be joyful people. Now, we're, you say, hold it. That's Old Testament stuff. Just remember, the Old Testament was written for our instruction. For those who would follow, that's us. It was written as a foreshadow of what Christ would do. So when you look at the Old Testament, you look for Christ. You're not going to see the name, but you're going to see the foreshadow of what he has done. The first four are going to be things that have already been completed in this world. The last three are yet future. 
So let's look at the first three that we can rejoice in to start with. The first is the day of uh, the, the feast of Passover. You know what Passover is? It comes from the actual event. Remember, they're slaves in Egypt. They're in bondage. They are not allowed to leave. God brings judgment. And the last judgment, the tenth judgment, is the firstborn in every household is going to die. Because the death angel is going to go through the land. But he said, if you believe me, if you're willing to do what I've asked you to do, you can save yourself a lot of grief. In fact is, every household that takes a lamb, sacrifices it, puts the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the house, the death angel will pass over your house. And there won't be grieving in that house. Because it's the blood of the lamb that provided the security, supplied the salvation that would come. And so the Passover lamb was sacrificed. The blood was put on. And that night there was grieving in all of Egypt. The whole way to the throne for Pharaoh. Because his son died. He was considered God, by the way. Everybody was grieving. Except in the households of those who had done as God had, expect, as God had commanded them. And so there was, I wouldn't say joy at that point in their houses, but they were not grieving the death of the firstborn. In the New Testament, it takes that principle and says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. In the Old Testament, it was a lamb, and it was for the deliverance of a people from slavery. For us, it's the perfect lamb of God sacrificed so that we could be free from the bondage and the slavery and the sin that we were all born in. We can have freedom. That's the joy. We can have forgiveness of sins delivered from the bondage of slavery and sin. It went immediately from the 14th day of the first month to the 15th to the 21st of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It also gets its name for exactly what happened. You see, immediately after the angel had passed over the houses, God had commanded them to get up and get out of Egypt. I mean, get out of town and get out now. So quickly that they didn't have time to allow their bread to rise. Not like us. They like their bread nice and fluffy and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? They didn't have time for the natural yeast to leaven the bread. And they had to get out fast. It celebrated the exodus from Egypt in the haste that they, they, they went out. In fact is, this leaven that it's referring to is almost always in the Bible a symbol of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it tells us this. It says, And celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. And so the two feasts are put together. We have forgiveness and deliverance, the joy that comes with that. And then we have the privilege and the joy of living a life that is not controlled by sin and bondage and slavery. We can live a holy life, a life that has joy. I got to tell you, there is nothing that makes you more miserable than being a believer and living in sin. 
The most miserable person in the world is not an unsaved person. We might think they are. But the most miserable person in the world is a saved person, one who knows the Passover, who is living in sin. Because their conscience, their knowledge, everything about their life says you're doing wrong, you're not living in a worthy manner. God in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul being the writer, puts these two together and says, this is what it means to you. Now, we don't celebrate the Passover, and we don't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We celebrate something that's a fulfillment of that. And it's been fulfilled in Christ. And we have the privilege of living it out in our lives. The third feast that we can look at that keeps us having a right attitude and joy in this life is first fruits. What they would do is they would go to the field right before the harvest and they would take one sheaf from the corner of the field. It wasn't the whole harvest, it was just one sheaf. They would take that sheaf, stalks with the heads still on it, they would take it before the Lord and offer it as an offering to the Lord. It was not the harvest itself, it was the anticipation of what was to come. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul again being the writer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says that Christ is the first fruits of what we have. You see, he was the one that showed us that the resurrection is going to take place. That death is not the end. That sin and death is not the final It is the resurrection that's the final. Jesus Christ was not all of the resurrection. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. If he rose, we rise. If he didn't rise, we don't rise. That's what the first fruits represented. Represented what was to come. Anticipation. Now, if we were living back then, that would still be a future joy. But for us, the resurrection of Christ has taken place. We have resurrection life. You don't have to wait for it. Now, we will have resurrected bodies and all that, of course, just like Jesus did, a glorified body. But we also now have resurrection life. We do not haphazardly meet the first day of the week. You can meet and worship anytime. That's not the issue. But why do we concentrate on Sunday morning? Because it represents the first day of the week. The resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he not only rose showing we'll have resurrected bodies and all those types of things, but also proving that he had power over sin and death. As a result, we can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the last verse of this chapter. We have resurrection power, and we can live in it, and we can live in joy. But there's that feast in between the early ones and the late ones. The Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It's very unique here. Because it says they are to count seven Sabbaths. That's 49 days plus one day. Leviticus chapter 23. And on that first day of the week, they were to make another offering. You see, the first fruits had been offered. And now they come back with this next offering. This offering is not individual grains of wheat or whatever grain it happens to be on the end of a stalk. These grains have now been ground up to flour. And they have been mixed together and made into a cake. And now the cake, the loaf, is offered to God. Something new is happening. It's interesting when you go to 
Acts chapter 2, you say, it says, when the day of Pentecost had come, God did something absolutely new. A new loaf. Something different. It wasn't first fruits. That was Christ. But now he's doing something different. And you know what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was sent to permanently indwell believers. The church had begun. It includes Jews and Gentiles who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. The original ones were only Jews. But the rest of the book of Acts shows us that that loaf included Gentiles as well. It was 50 days. Seven Sabbath. And by the way, just in case anybody doesn't know this yet, a Sabbath, the Sabbath day is always Saturday. Always the last day of the week. It is never Sunday in the Bible or in any other good theology. It simply is not. The first day of the week is when the church started. God's plan that he was going to do something new. It was as on the basis of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the basis of the first fruits of resurrection. Now he begins a whole new work. We call it the church. But then there are the three fall feasts that still have not yet been fulfilled in the world. They just haven't been fulfilled. They are going to happen just as surely as the first four have already taken place. And there was a time when none of those had taken place. Uh, I, I have to tell you that when I look at the Bible, the really neat thing about the Bible, it never contradicts itself. It always ro- operates in a, nat- a normal, rational logical fashion. If God fulfilled these things very literally and in order, he's going to continue to do that. In fact, we know that he's going to. How do we know that? Based on his past record, his past uh, track record that he has shown us. The first one is the Feast of Trumpets. It was celebrated in Israel. It was a day of reminder to prepare for the coming Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement we'll get to in a moment. But it was to let the people know, hey, the next round of feasts is coming up. Now you say, wow, it doesn't sound all that exciting. Why just trumpets and it's a day of blowing? By the way, if you look in your Bible, you'll see the trumpets are in italics. It's the day of blowing or the feast of blowing. It's not a trumpet sound. It's the day when trumpets are blown. Now, there's something interesting, and uh, this next part I can't find in the Bible, but I've looked it up, and tradition says that on the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish people blew the shofar, which is a ram's horn trumpet, 100 times. I can't prove this, so, but it really makes a whole lot of sense. They would blow the trumpet during that day 99 short blasts. And then there was the last one, the hundredth one. And it was a long blast from the ram's horn. I don't know how long it lasted, but compared to the others, it was a long, it was a prolonged uh, note to the nation of Israel. It's very interesting that when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, at the last trumpet. Never could understand that until this week when I was studying it. It makes all sense to me now. Why does he call it the last trumpet? Because there are other trumpets in the Bible. But at the last trumpet, well, here's what it comes down to. The rapture is that time when God is saying, I am going to start my future events. 
Not the church anymore, something different than that. It is the trumpet, the last trumpet, when we'll be changed. The rapture happens. People will be resurrected, reunited. And they will be given life. The bodies that were dead for hundreds of years are going to be raised up. And they're going to have glorified bodies. Those that are still living, of course, are going to be translated. And they also will have new bodies. We're going to be changed. This perishable will be putting on imperishability. That which was dishonor will put on glory. That's what the Bible says. And when does it happen? When the last trumpet sounds. In fact, the... It says, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, Christ is going to return. And he's not coming to the earth in this case. He is going to come and snatch away, catch away those that are his. And we'll be with him forever. He says we're supposed to comfort one another with those words. Well, the Feast of Trumpets is exactly what it did. It says, we're going to celebrate that great thing that God is doing. Prepare for it. This is a reminder. Living in anticipation of what God is going to do. What is that anticipation event? The Day of Atonement. Different than every other day in the nation of Israel. As you may know, God dwelled in the midst of His people. In the tabernacle first, and then in the temple. Not just in a big old enclosure, but in a very specific place. The Holy of Holies. In it was the Ark of the Covenant, covered by the mercy seat, covered by angels, cherubim to be exact. And in the midst of that, God dwelt. The Jews call that the Shekinah glory. A blaze of light. No man was ever allowed to go in there. You go in, you're dead. Except one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And then only by a very specific, prescribed way could he go in there. And only one person, the high priest. Tradition says that the Jews actually tied a rope onto the high priest's ankle when he went in there. Because if he went in there and didn't do things right and died, they weren't going in after him. (laughs) They could pull him back out, but they weren't going in after him. I don't know if they did that or not, but that's what the tradition says. All I know is this. One day of the week, one day of the year, for the sins of the whole people, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice in a basin, and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Now, when he went in, it wasn't like the normal times would be, the, the normal atmosphere in the Holy of Holies, because they had to offer a lot of different incenses. The whole place would have been like one big cloud of smoke. I believe it was a reason for that. I can't prove this, of course. But it would be that it would veil the glory of God, much like his physical body veiled his glory when he walked among people. And the high priest would go in on the specific day in a very prescribed manner, and he would sprinkle the blood for the atonement of the sins of the people for one more year. Now, notice the word we use, atonement. You're not going to hear me preaching on atonement. I know people do. I believe they're wrong. Because atonement only has one meaning. It means cover. Jesus Christ did not, as the perfect Lamb of God, did not cover sin. He took it away. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus Christ coming in John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say covers the sin of the world. He said takes it away. We have the day of atonement fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to the Jewish people? Where's the fulfillment for the Jewish people? At the end of the tribulation, and I'm not going to spend any time on this because I'm going to run out of time, but at the end of the tribulation, it says by the end of the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews will die. And the one-third that are left will see the one who they have pierced. In one day, the whole nation in mass will turn to Jesus Christ. It is going to be the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people in a way that has never happened. By and large, the Jewish people have been a rebellious people. They've done their own thing, gone their own way. Yes, they've had revivals. But by and large, they've gone their own way. The Day of Atonement is that first time when the whole nation, God's, all God's chosen people, are going to come to Him. I don't know how it all works. I've got to tell you that, but it's in the, New, it's in the Old Testament in particular, uh, in the, the prophetic books, where it just says the whole nation, those that are left, are going to come to Christ in one day. But this Day of Atonement, the joy for us is that Christ has died and paid the penalty for Jew and Gentile alike. We can rejoice in what Christ has done. In fact, is when Janae was reading the passage, I thought she was going to steal my fire also. Because it tells us in Hebrews, which is the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ did something different than the Old Testament priests. They went in day by day, all the time, offering sacrifices. The high priest, once a year, offering sacrifices. It was never done. In fact, as Hebrews said, when Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, offered Himself, His blood, before the throne in heaven, it was once and done for all times. Nothing else could be added. It was, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In the Old Testament, I challenge you, go back and read the Old Testament. Find anywhere on the temple grounds, in the tabernacle, in the holy place, the holy of holies, any place, find a chair. Find a place for a priest to sit down and rest his weary feet. There are none. Because the work of sacrifice was never finished. It was ongoing, continuous and continuous. And that's what Hebrews says. But it says of Jesus Christ, when he had done this, when he had entered, when he had given his own blood, his own life for our sin, he sat down. The work of the Old Testament priesthood was never done. Even on the Day of Atonement, it only lasted one year. They had to go back and do it next year. But Jesus Christ sat down because it was a finished, complete work. It was not covering the sins for one more year. It was eternal redemption. See, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, your, the work for your sin has been completed. And then there's that last time of joy. I can imagine the kids would wait all year for this time. Mom and dad are going to build a shelter out in the backyard. What they would do is, tabernacle means tent. Now, they didn't use tents like canvas or we use nylon or whatever. But they were to go out and get branches from trees. You can go back and read this in Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament. And they would build temporary shelters. And they would camp out in these shelters for seven days. That's what they would do. It was, like I said, a national camp out.
And it was reminding them of wandering through the wilderness when God led them out of slavery into the promised land. What is the future fulfillment for us? Because at the end of the tribulation, there will be those that um, have survived, those that have just trusted Christ. Remember, a whole nation is coming uh, to Christ in one day. They're going to go right on into that thousand years of Christ ruling and reigning on the earth. And we... Those of us that have been raptured seven years before that are coming back to rule and reign with Him. And so here we have not only the Jewish people entering into the rest that God had prepared for them for thousands of years and they had continued to sin and miss it, and those that have trusted Christ from the church age are all coming together and for not seven days, but a thousand years ruling and reigning on a restored earth. Now, it's not heaven. This is not heaven at all. This is on the earth. Heaven is not on this earth. This old heaven and earth are going to be destroyed anew when it's coming up. It's even better yet. But for now, the future fulfillment is that Christ is going to rule and reign. And we're going to be priests of God and of Christ, and we're going to reign with Him for a thousand years. i got to tell you, I don't understand all of that. Because it's future. I just know that I plan to experience it and be a part of it when it is fulfilled, just like the rest of these things. You see, we have to have a right attitude if we're going to live a righteous life. If you start with the wrong attitude, it's like, oh, I, gotta, I just got to make it through. I hope, God, I hope God has done enough for me. Forget it. You're in the wrong direction. Here's the joy we have. We can sing. Why can we sing? Because everything that needed to be done for our salvation has been accomplished. It's finished. It's eternal. There's nothing you can add to it. All you can do is live it out. And not only that, we have something forward to look forward to. Let's face it. I just heard of uh, additional volcanoes and mudslides down in Guatemala. Uh, Mr. Crick was telling me that. I didn't know anything about it, but it's down near the orphanage where some of you have been. Uh, It's bad. This earth is not a place I want to stay on unless it's restored. There is joy in the future. i got to tell you, you're probably in one way or the other in your life in the midst of a crisis. I don't care what it is. It could be your health. It could be a relationship. It could be your work. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. All I know is you're going to live right before God. You start with the right attitude. And that attitude is basically... I have a joyful attitude. It's a choice I make. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. That's what God wants. Now, we spent all that on the first three verses. Let's do the last ones in four minutes, okay? (laughs) If you would, please. Continuing on. And I got way ahead of myself in my notes. I got to go through all these notes. Okay, we're in verse 6. Because in verse 6, it tells us, that we need to look back at what God has done. Now, we've already done some of that when we looked at the feasts. But he says in verse 6, I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. Talking about the slavery they had in Egypt. You called in trouble, I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Merah, Selah. He said, look back. If you don't think that you can live in joy now, you don't think you can live righteously now, look back and see what I've done in the past. If you cannot look back and say, this is what Christ has done in my life, and I'm going to live in the light of that and the joy of that, 
please don't leave today without talking to me, talk to Dave. We would be glad, talk to Joe, uh, Pastor John. We'd be glad to take you to the Word of God and show you how you can know that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven, you're right with God. Jesus Christ is your Savior. Heaven is your home. And you can live a life that's worth living here and now, a life of joy, because that's what it's about. All this Old Testament stuff just simply foreshadowed what Christ would do. But we need to have a challenge. That challenge is, as I said before, to righteous or holy living. What is the challenge? Very quickly, if you will follow with me, starting in verse 8. First of all, it tells us nothing is to come between us and God. If you want to live righteously, well, let's look at verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. I will fill it. If you keep things from getting between you and God, I don't care what that distraction is, doesn't matter, it can even be a good thing. If anything gets between you and God and wrecks that relationship, short circuits that relationship, you're in trouble. And so you need to get rid of it. In reality, nothing is to come between us and God. We have to have a clear communication and clear line of, commu- of, of communication with Him. The second thing is, we need to make sure that things uh, are not allowed in our lives. Look what it says in verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. i got to tell you this. You let things come between you and God, He doesn't have to send judgment. You know what He does? He says, you want to live that way? You want that to be your focus of your life? You want that to be your God? Okay, here it is. I've got to tell you. You know kids? They say, I want candy, I want candy. And then you go, they're going to get a bellyache, you're going to get a bellyache. So you give in. You're, you're not a perfect parent. You give in and you give. So the next thing you've got a kid with a stomachache all night long and you're really paying for it and they're paying for it. We're not kids. But I've got to tell you, we go to God and we say, God, I want this, I want this, I want this. God says, no, I told you that's wrong. That's sin. That's, that's just not my will for your life. No, I want to. He says, okay, go ahead. Guess what? It has its own built-in judgment. Because guess what? I have settled for something other than God's best. And the judgment is there. He said, I'll just give you over to your own devices. You want it? I'll give it to you. You'll regret it. Wow. But continuing on, he pleads with us to obey him. Look at verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. He said, if you trust me, keep all these things out of the way. He said, I'll fight your battle for you. I'll take care of you. He said, you open your mouth wide, I'll fill your mouth. Here he says, I'll take care of your enemies. You think it's a battle. You think you've got to do it. He says, I'll do it for you. And one last thing. The world desperately needs us as examples. That's a challenge. Look at verse 15 and 16. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him, and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. 
He said, if you were willing to obey me, keep everything from getting in the way of our relationship, you would have the joy. And I would do these things. In fact, as he said, you would be so effective, your testimony, your example would be so strong that the people that don't obey God, don't trust Christ, they would be pretending to be the real thing because they would see what is true in your life. They would pretend obedience to him. They'd go, at least go through the motions because they'd be afraid of being the odd man out. I have a challenge for you. I took the liberty of taking out the references to Israel. I want you to just, in the next, it's going to take me about two minutes to do this, put your name, when it says my children, put your, put your name in there and go home with this. Hear, O my children, and I will admonish you. O my children, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the bondage and slavery to sin. Open, wide, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my children did not listen to my voice and my children did not obey me. So I gave my children over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my children would listen to me. That my children would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue my children's enemies and turn my hand against my children's adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend, pretend obedience to Him and their time of punishment would be forever. If you're going to live right, it starts with the right attitude. A right reminder of how God has worked in the past. And then a challenge to make sure nothing Nothing in this world, no philosophy, no, no wrong mindset, no objects, no things, no, no activity, no religious things get in the way of a relationship with God because that's the place of blessing. That's how you live a righteous life. That's the challenge this morning. Would you please rise as we're dismissed with a word of prayer?